Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. It's a privilege to open the scriptures together. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 10. If you're opening with a, one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 300. 1 Kings chapter 10, as you are turning there, we know and believe that these words from the scriptures are God's words, and they are profitable for us, that we might know him, that we might grow, and that we might then be equipped for every good work that God has prepared for us. And so as we open the word, we come with a sense of expectation that God not simply has spoken in the past, but then is through his word this morning, even now speaking again to us as we gather. As I was looking at our text this, for this morning, I was distracted by this question, what if I told you? Right. Now, if you're at all familiar with ESPN or enjoy tracking sports of any kind, you might have come across these uh, short documentaries that ESPN has produced called the 30 for 30. And in one trailer, hyping these documentaries, the entire one minute is full of questions framed by or started by the phrase, what if I told you? They ask questions like this, what if I told you he wasn't the greatest? They're referring to Muhammad Ali. How compelling to think, wait, hold on. He even said he was the greatest, right? Uh, I want to watch this documentary to see why he might not have been the greatest. Right? And they go on to ask other questions. What if I told you that sometimes it is a matter of life and death? And they show a, a short clip of a soccer player from South America who accidentally scored a goal for the opposing team, who then was killed when he returned. Not, not by the government, but simply by some fans who took this game so seriously that it cost him his life. It was a matter of life and death. Shocking. Right? Over and over in this one-minute trailer, they ask this question, what if I told you? What if I told you something that seems so unbelievable that it would at least cause us to stop, take note, and be drawn into whatever the story might be? Friends, the scriptures are full of this type of question. What if I told you? What if I told you God would create a people to display his glory from an idolatrous and childless pagan? What if I told you that God would promise that very man that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through one of his offspring? What if I told you that God would deliver his enslaved people, now a large nation, from the great national power of the day? What if I told you that God would provide his people, despite their grumbling and unbelief, the land he had promised their forefathers? What if I told you God would establish a young shepherd boy as king, promising him that his throne would last forever? What if I told you God would use the words of a foreign queen to summarize the high watermark of Old Testament Israel? All of these questions point to a growing storyline, the storyline of God's word that in some ways might seem unbelievable or at least unexpected, and in every way highlights God's wisdom and the pursuit of his glory among all the nations. And this morning we look at that last question that I posed. Our passage, 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13, asks this question. 
Would God use the words of a foreign queen to summarize the high watermark of Old Testament Israel? And what is it that she says that points to his goodness and glory? Let's look at these 13 verses together in 1 Kings 10. The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of the Lord and came to test him with difficult questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage, with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, his servant's residence, his attendant's service and their attire, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple, it took her breath away. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your words and about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men! How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king four and a half tons of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again did such a quantity of spices arrive as those the queen of Sheba gave to, the, to King Solomon. In addition, Hiram's fleet that carried gold from Ophir brought from Ophir a large quantity of almond wood and precious stones. The king made the almond wood into steps for the Lord's temple and the king's palace and into lyres and harps for the singers. Never before did such almond wood arrive and the like has not been seen again. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba her every desire, whatever she asked, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she, along with her servants, returned to her own country. Join me in praying once more. Father, we gladly confess that salvation belongs to you. And we wonder that you graciously extend it to us in the name of Jesus Christ. And we plead that our very hearts this morning would be glad in Jesus. That our families would find great joy in the name of Jesus. And we pray that all nations would find their great gladness in Jesus and in him alone. Spirit of God, guide us now. Stir us again to treasure you above all things, to see in this text your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, and most of all, one who is better than Solomon. Help us to behold Christ and to believe. Amen.
As we come to this short narrative of the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon, there are eight brief scenes that focus on the queen and her actions. We'll follow the camera, as it were, and these scenes will give us a guide and focus our attention to what this passage is pointing us to this morning. Scene one, the Queen of Sheba hears. With me at the very beginning of this passage in verse 1, the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of the Lord. The first scene is that the Queen of Sheba hears. This starts us off in an important way. It says the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of the Lord. This one phrase is loaded with meaning. Drawing back on several key passages that point us to the significance of what is happening just in this first sentence. The Queen of Sheba hears about Solomon's fame rooted in the name of the Lord. Well, why is this so significant? Well, in Deuteronomy 4, as Moses speaks to the people of God on the threshold of the promised land, he tells them about what God is doing and why he is doing it in setting apart a people and placing them in a land. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Look, I have taught you statues and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there? that has a God near to it, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him. And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? Moses is saying God has a purpose in setting apart this people and bringing them into this land. It's that what happens there will be a display to all of the nations, not simply of their wisdom and understanding, but their their wisdom and understanding and obedience will point to the greatness and goodness and the glory of God. And the question in some ways that follows the history of Israel is, will this happen? And will it continue? Well, early on in 1 Kings, we start to see a glimpse of this happening. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34, it says this, God gave Solomon wisdom very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, sons of Mahol. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, emissaries of all peoples sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So specifically, we're getting a picture in 1 Kings 10 of what was anticipated in Deuteronomy 4, and what was spoken of in 1 Kings 4. A specific royal member, the Queen of Sheba, hears of the wisdom and understanding of Solomon, and she's drawn 
not simply to him, but to see and praise the God who has brought this people to their land. So the queen of Sheba hears, and then she goes to find out if what she has heard is true. The scene shifts. Scene two, the queen of Sheba comes. Look with me at the second half of verse one and the beginning of verse two. She came to test him with difficult questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage, with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance and precious stones. Now the queen says, I must go to find out what is happening. Is what I've heard really true? So she comes to test him with difficult questions. Who is it that comes? Not, Not just some gullible person. This is a royal member. This is the queen who comes with specific questions, almost, again, as if to say, I'm, I'm not sure if this is legitimate. The stories I've heard seem too good to be true. I wonder if they could be. And she comes, as it were, with all of her credentials, a large entourage, camels, spices, gold in great abundance and precious stones. She's legit. We should listen to what she has to say. She comes as a credible royal member to find out, is this true? And does it in fact point to a God who is at work to set apart his people? Scene three, the queen of Sheba asks. Look with me at the second half of verse two and verse three. The queen came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. So the queen hears, she comes, and now she asks. She's not simply assuming his wisdom. She comes and she speaks to him about everything that was on her mind, and it says Solomon answered all her questions. His wisdom that had been given by God was proven in his responses to her questions. This is important. Because wisdom is not simply something set aside as knowledge. There is discernment and understanding in hearing the questions of the queen and responding to them. The greatness of his wisdom is exhibited in his answers. And he didn't simply answer some. He answered all. His responses, his wisdom was comprehensive and it was given by God. There's one note in some of the different English translations, different from the CSB, and I think it helps just enrich our understanding of what's happening here. In the ESV, it says there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. In the NASB, nothing was concealed from the king which he did not explain to her. Not only were these questions not difficult, but they were unpacked, right? I think what's happening is the writer is pointing again to say Solomon's wisdom was wonderful. He was able right, to answer all of her questions, but friends, don't forget that this was wisdom given by God. It was hidden and concealed until God gave clarity and understanding and insight. The Queen of Sheba asks. Scene four, the camera shifts. The Queen of Sheba sees. Not only has she had a conversation But she now sees the fruit of this wisdom around her. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, his servants' residence, his attendants' service and their attire, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple, it took her breath away. 
Queen of Sheba sees, right, in verses 4 and 5, right, glory given by God, the fruit of Solomon's wisdom, right? She sees the palace, she sees the food, she sees where, her, where his servants live, what his servants do, and how they're dressed. She sees the offerings at the temple. She's overwhelmed, astonished at what she sees. Again, wisdom is not simply knowledge set aside, but it is that knowledge well applied for the sake of those that Solomon leads. You know the importance of wisdom and its application as it works itself out in all sorts of different areas. Uh, I've, I've seen this work itself out recently. I am very good at fixing things with our family vehicles that in the end don't actually need to be fixed. Right? Not long ago, I looked at our van door, uh, which wasn't working, and I thought, I, I know how to fix it. I'll get the things that I need. I'll replace the part that I think is the problem. And it turns out that part was not the issue. And the van continues, door continues not to work, right? I've done it on several vehicles over the course of my adventures of vehicle ownership, right? What this reveals, right, is that wisdom, at least in car repair, is not present for me, right? I may have knowledge and access to YouTube, which can help me understand how to replace a part, but being able to actually diagnose what the problem is and to have understanding to look at the issue and then in wisdom apply knowledge to bear good fruit, I'm still working on that part. Right? Queen of Sheba does not simply ask questions and get answers, but she sees the fruit of Solomon's wisdom in the lives of the people around her. And all of this, all of these short scenes... The Queen of Sheba hearing and coming and asking and seeing leads to the ultimate focus of this story, and it's what the Queen of Sheba says. So let's look at scene five, the Queen of Sheba speaks. This is at the very center of the story, and it receives special emphasis. Look with me at verses six through nine. She said to the king, the report I heard in my country about your words and about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men? How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom? Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. You might say, well, why? How do we know this is the focus? In any sort of story that you tell, you might give an overview of details to move the story along, but if there's an important conversation, you stop. And at best, you try to quote, or at least, at least give a summary of what actually was said, because it's important. We want to stop someone, to focus intention, your attention here. Imagine... Uh, you're headed into a Thanksgiving family gathering this week or you anticipate some challenging conversations. And so you catch someone here this morning and you say, would you pray for me? I know that as I gather with my family or friends in the coming week, there will be some difficult conversations. So would you pray for me? Right. And then next Sunday, that brother or sister comes up to you and says, 
I've been praying for you. How was your time with your family? You might give some narrative details about where you went and how the travel went and all those things, but the question is specifically about that conversation you had. How did it go? And you wouldn't say something like, it was great, but you might stop and give details. Right? We, were, we were sitting down and we were having a, this conversation and, and here's the question that was posed to the table and, and here's the specific answer that was given and here's the specific response and this is how it blew up or something along those lines. You would give specifics, right? You would focus the attention on the actual conversation. In this passage, the focus, the main idea is built here in what the queen says, and here is the main idea. It's all building toward that last phrase in verse 9. All right, the queen recognizes, I heard the things that I heard. I came to see, and I found out they're true. And then she lets him know, I didn't actually believe them until I came and saw them. And what happened is that I realized what was said of you wasn't even half of what truly is. Your wisdom, she says, and prosperity far exceed the report I had heard. Then in verse 9 she says, Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. And here's the main idea of the passage for us. Because of his faithful love, God displays his glory and goodness to all peoples through a wise king who executes justice and righteousness for his people. This is what the Queen of Sheba speaks. This is what she testifies, what she highlights about what God is doing and who he is for his people. This scene carries the narrative to the next scene in this passage. From this highlight and main idea, the next three scenes simply work to underscore the significance of what the queen says. In scene six, the queen of Sheba gives. What the queen has spoken are not merely words. What she sees and speaks, she backs up with gifts. Look at verse 10. She gave the king four and a half tons of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again did such a quantity of spices arrive as those the queen of Sheba gave to, to King Solomon. In addition, Hiram's fleet that carried gold from Ophir brought from Ophir a large quantity of almond wood and precious stones. The king made the almond wood into steps for the Lord's temple and the king's palace and into lyres and harps for the singers. Never before did such almond wood arrive, and the like was not, has not been seen again. First, in response, following what she has spoken, the glory of God and his kindness in Solomon's kingship, ruling over his people, the queen of Sheba gives, right? Her gifts legitimize her words. These are not simply empty words where she's trying to be politically savvy to get on Solomon's good side. She believes what she says because of what she has seen, and her gifts then are a response to the glory of what she beholds. Verses 11 and 12 help underscore that though her gifts are significant, in Solomon's day they are not uncommon, this is the glory of Solomon's kingdom and the high watermark of Old Testament Israel. He is the great king such that things like gold and almond wood are commonplace. The queen's gifts highlight the significance of what it is that she has seen, but her gifts pale in comparison to what she receives. Look at scene 7. The queen of Sheba receives. King Solomon, in verse 13, 
gave the queen of Sheba her every desire, whatever she asked, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. This underscores the blessing of Solomon's kingdom, the wise king who rules in justice and righteousness, brings blessing not only to his own subjects, but to the nations. I think we see here a reflection of the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. Here's what he said to Abraham. Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Those who bless him, those who bless the people that God gives to Abraham will in fact be blessed by him. God's intention has been that Israel would serve as a light to the Gentiles, that the nations might find God's blessing in Abraham's offspring. The queen's gifts pale in comparison to what Solomon in his wisdom and in his goodness gives. In the last scene, the queen of Sheba returns. The end of verse 13 concludes, Then she, along with her servants, returned to her own country. Lastly, the queen of Sheba returns. Her mission, both personally and to the narrative, is complete. She determines that what she has heard of Solomon is true and much more. She comes, she sees, she believes. In fact, it's greater than anything she heard. This is the story of 1 Kings 10 that highlights God's faithful love and that through this love, he displays his glory to all nations through a wise king who executes justice and righteousness for his people. Well, what do we do with this today? I think from this passage and what is focused on in this main idea, there are at least four responses for us from the words of the Queen of Sheba. First is that we praise God's faithfulness. We praise God's faithfulness. Just as the Queen of Sheba came and saw the glory and goodness of God, who gave wisdom to Solomon for the good of Solomon's people, God is faithful to his words. Just as he said in Deuteronomy 4, just as he promised in Genesis 12, that through Abraham and Abraham's offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, God is doing that through this picture of the Queen of Sheba. Someone from outside the covenant family of Israel comes and is a beneficiary of the good wisdom of Solomon given by God. And not only is God faithful, he executes this faithfulness with the best end, his glory, and accomplishes it by the best means, the demonstration of his grace and goodness. This is his wisdom, right? That's what wisdom is. It's pursuing the best end and accomplishing it by the best means. The praise of his faithfulness that demonstrates itself in God's wise working in the world cultivates a joy and peace that cannot be matched, and it overflows in praise. Reflecting on this wisdom of God, one theologian writes, this wisdom should fill us with joy, that infinite wisdom that guides the affairs of the world. Many of its events are shrouded in darkness and mystery. Right? Confusion sometimes seems to reign. Often wickedness prevails, and God seems to have forgotten the creatures that he has made. Our own path through life is dark and devious and beset with difficulties and dangers. How full of consolation is the doctrine that infinite wisdom directs every event, 
brings order out of confusion and light out of darkness. And to those who love God causes all things, whatever be their present aspect and apparent tendency, to work together for good. So we praise God for his faithfulness. His words are full of his promises that he proves true day in and day out for us as his people. We praise God for his faithfulness. What might this look like maybe even more specifically though? What does the reality look like for us? Just this past week, I was sitting down with a dear brother who's a, a doctoral student at Midwestern as well. I was getting to know him, just asking him some questions. He was sharing a little bit about uh, his background. He and his wife have been married for over a decade. And I asked him, do you have any children? And his face fell. And he said, no. Not, not for lack of trying. Right? And so to, to feel in, in that way, in that moment, for this dear brother, what, what does it look like to lean into God's wisdom and goodness, even in the midst of grief and unmet hopes and expectations? I thought about that as we continued our conversation. Later in, in chapel that same day, we sat next to each other. And I was struck by the fact that he stood and sang even in the weight of unmet expectations, right? Hopes deferred. He stood and, and rejoiced, praised the faithful God, even as his own circumstances of life may not have carried themselves out in the way that he had hoped, right? We praise God for his faithfulness. Second, we anticipate God's fulfillment. Not only do we look back and praise him for his faithfulness as we see him demonstrate his trustworthiness over and over again. We anticipate right, his continued fulfillment of those promises. You see, when we come to 1 Kings 10, we are on the doorstep of disaster. We've seen glimpses of it already in 1 Kings. Solomon reigns as the great king at the high watermark of Old Testament Israel until the greater king comes, Jesus Christ himself. But chapter 11 sobers us because it points to Solomon's failure and the downfall of his kingdom and the splitting of Israel into two. We're left not looking to Solomon as the one in whom we hope, but we anticipate God's future fulfillment of a greater king whose rule will not come to an end, a son of David who will rule forever. In fact, the scriptures continue to anticipate this, pointing to other nations like Sheba in Psalm 72. Solomon, writing this song, says of this king, in Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11, May he rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes kneel before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coasts and islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. Solomon anticipates the king of whom these words will bring Final fulfillment. That man that, is, that came is Jesus. So we anticipate not simply by looking back and praising his faithfulness, but we look ahead and anticipate that final fulfillment of God's promises, the return of the great king, of Jesus himself. We anticipate that great day when people from all nations, from every tongue and tribe and language, will stand before the throne and will praise him. Third, then, 
We participate in God's purposes. There's a logical progression here, I think. God's faithfulness is displayed. His fulfillment of promises is anticipated as he shows his trustworthiness. And this gives us then good courage to join in the great commission work of making disciples of all nations. We see in this one passage God's heart for all peoples. So we partner together for the advance of the gospel. We see that God's purposes are not simply for one people in one place, but that he, bring, he works to bring glory and honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of churches proclaiming the word of God all around the world. We not only anticipate the fulfillment that God brings in Christ, but then we participate in his purposes, the advance of the gospel around the world. Well, what might this look like for us, even as a church family? Well, consider this even as Pastor Bobby prayed earlier, we rejoice to partner and support those who are concretely going to take the gospel to the nations. We also, even as a church these past few months, have known the bittersweet privilege of sending as we've sent out friends, a pastor, to support the work of gospel advance in places around our country, also around the world. So we, we partner in that way. But what else? What could this look like? Consider briefly the testimony of the Queen of Sheba as a type of model for bearing witness to the wisdom and faithfulness of God that you have seen. She testifies to what she sees and knows. Specifically, she testifies to what is true, to what is good, and to where these things come from. If we were to look back even at the words that she speaks, she says, first, what I heard I can now say is true. Then she says, happy are those around you. And then she praises God as the source of those things. It may be that this very week, as you gather with friends and family, God will provide an opportunity for you to bear witness to what you have found to be true, good, and the very source, God himself. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I would pose those questions to you. What have you found to be true? What have you found to be good? And what is the source of those things? At Liberty Baptist, we proclaim that in Christ, all of those things meet. He is the truth. He is the very source of goodness. And we turn to him in faith. Lastly, heed God's warning. Heed God's warning. As much as this passage we've looked at this morning celebrates the glory and goodness of God in his work raising up Solomon as a wise king who executes justice and righteousness for his people, Jesus picks up this passage, and he uses it not in celebration, but in sober warning. In Matthew 12, he's speaking to the religious leaders who questioned whether Jesus is really who he says he is. It is an entire section focused on the unbelief of Israel. And these religious leaders say, we'll believe you, but would you give us a sign just 
Just one more sign, right? Show us something that will establish your credentials. And we know already that Jesus has done more than enough for the religious leaders to see and understand that he is, in fact, who he says he is. Jesus uncovers their unbelief, and he points to the Queen of Sheba as a warning. He says this, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. What is Jesus pointing to? What is his warning to each of us today? Friends, the Queen of Sheba had only a rumor. She heard something of the wisdom of Solomon that drew her to the city of God, to Jerusalem, where she was able to interact with the king and find that all she had heard was true and more. She had little to go on compared to what the religious leaders of Jesus' day had. They had the law, the prophets, Jesus himself in their midst, yet their hardness of heart rejected Jesus and his testimony. What of us? We have the word of God. We have it in full. The testimony of God's faithfulness from creation to the sending of his son, to the Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, to his now rule and reign over all things. The warning for each of us is, will we see the one who is greater than Solomon? He has come. He has died. He has risen, and now he rules and reigns. The one greater than Solomon is Christ Jesus himself. We must hear his words and follow after him. Here, church family, we must also take great care and, and plead God's mercy to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. Many of us here would approve that conceptual reality of Jesus. Yes, he is better than Solomon. But there is a disorientation here, a discontinuity that may challenge us. For Christ has taught us a different route to glory than what we see in Solomon. And part of Jesus' warning to us today is that in pursuing the appearance of glory, we despise the wisdom of the cross. God displays his glory and goodness through Jesus, the wise king, not through a comfortable path of self-promotion, but through a self-emptying death on the cross. And it was in his death on the cross that Jesus provides redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the full execution of justice and righteousness for his people. As one artist has captured it, to the cross I look, to the cross I cling, of its suffering I do drink, and of its work I do sing. For on it my Savior, both bruised and crushed, showed that God is love and God is just. Friends, do not despise the wisdom of God in the cross of Christ, nor in the call to self-emptying daily death of following Jesus. Watch against bringing worldly expectations of present glory to your attempt at the Christian life. Do not think that association with this king will bring you acclaim in these days. Do not attempt to leverage knowing this king as an attempt to build your own platform or promote yourself. And let us not fall prey to these things even as a church family. We have one Lord who is both a crucified and risen Savior. And we await with confident expectation his glorious return. And until then we walk humbly that road of the cross. 
Jesus is greater than Solomon, accomplishing the best end, his eternal glory, through the best, though surprising, means. Here it is again, the main idea of 1 Kings 10. Because of his faithful love, God displays his glory and goodness through a wise king who executes justice and righteousness for his people. Pictured in Solomon, this anticipates Jesus, who is the wise king. God's glory is displayed in him, in his goodness to all peoples, that wise king who executes justice and righteousness for his people. Friends, as we hear from the Queen of Sheba, let us take these things to heart, to praise him for his faithfulness, to anticipate his ongoing fulfillment of his word, to participate then in his purposes of gospel advance into all nations, and to heed his warning to hear, believe, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts to receive your word, and that that word would then take root and bear fruit to the glory of your name. Amen.